You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 44 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, where every week we talk a lot about the labour movement. This week, um, I am paying special attention to something, well, I talked to a few weeks ago on this podcast about nurses in Altoona, Pennsylvania, at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center who were out on strike. This week, things have heated up a little for UPMC, as for the last couple of days, workers have been on the streets in downtown Pittsburgh calling on the nonprofit, I use that term advisedly, healthcare system, which is the region's now largest employer, to stop paying its workers' poverty wages. Dave Jameson at Huffington Post writes, quote, SEIU and its allies have cast the UPMC campaign as an effort to improve pay and standards on the bottom rungs of Pittsburgh's booming healthcare industry. In recent years, healthcare jobs have largely replaced manufacturing jobs as the core of the region's economy, with one in five private sector workers now employed in an area hospital, according to the Los Angeles Times. Despite the many good-paying jobs at UPMC facilities, a number of the service workers, cafeteria employees, for instance, are earning wages that put them near or below the poverty line, according to SEIU. So this supposedly nonprofit hospital has been sued by the city of Pittsburgh, which hopes to make it pay some $20 million in payroll and real estate taxes that it's been able until now to avoid thanks to some tax breaks related to charity care. Jameson's article includes the jaw-dropping claim from the hospital that it gives additional money to charity because of Medicaid shortfalls and unpaid patient bills. Now, of course, some of us think healthcare isn't charity, but a right that should be available to all. But if I get started talking about that right now, I will never shut up. And, of course, you can expect more on hospitals from me next week. Right. This is what employment, though, in the Rust Belt is starting to look like. Service and care work jobs that pay far less than the factory jobs did in their heyday, and workforces that are predominantly women and people of color. Rather than waiting for those manufacturing jobs to come back, though, it looks as if the community is rallying around the healthcare workers in Pittsburgh, where a labor-backed progressive slate took over in last year's elections. The new mayor, Bill Peduto, apparently cut short a trip to Washington in order to come back and try to mediate between the two sides, but UPMC doesn't seem to want to deal. So we will, I'm sure, keep you updated on this story. And speaking of nonprofits that act like evil corporations, weird. Uh, yeah, uh, this was a big week in Albany in the battle between the pro and anti charter camp in New York City. And this is a pretty long-standing battle, but things reach basically a fever pitch because as budget talks proceed in Albany, there's now a lot of controversy over de Blasio's recent, or Mayor de Blasio's recent decision to basically just not let three charter schools take up space in the buildings of regular public schools. Um, This is known as co-location, and despite the innocuous-sounding name, it really just kind of means letting charter schools leech off of the regular spaces of public schools. And Blasio has not actually, you know, outright shuttered any schools. He hasn't actually told schools that they will never be able to share anything with with regular public schools. But Eva Moskowitz and uh, her chain of schools called the Success Academies are um, actually extremely incensed about this, and they see it as something oppressing them. They've actually launched a, a school charter 
reform group called Families for Excellent Schools, which is, of course, if you follow the movement, you know that they tend to pick names such as Families for Excellent Schools, things that no one can ever disagree with ever. But her actual agenda involves, while well, she tells de Blasio, you know, not to hold families back by l- not letting them share uh, public school space, what she's really talking about is, you know, not letting charter schools basically sap funding and other resources from the public school system, which is what they're known for doing and which is what her entire educational scheme is really about. So this has all come to a fever pitch in Albany, and Governor Cuomo, for his part, has actually sided with the charter school movement on this and has basically painted de Blasio as being needlessly obstructionist and, uh, you know, siding with the teachers' unions, etc. If you're not familiar with the name Success Academy, uh, you might want to note that it is actually a uh, Uh, quite notorious, even within the charter school movement in New York City, for doing things like um, pushing out special needs students and uh, having an extraordinarily high suspension rate, many times the average rate of comparable elementary schools in one uh, school. And uh, the administration has chalked this up to creating a, a culture of order and civility in the classroom, which is essentially more like creating a military boot camp style learning environment in which children um, have the fear of God basically scared into them by teachers who bark orders at them all day and then force them. Or the fear of Eva. Or the fear of Eva, not to confuse the two, but you know what I mean. (laughs) And so, yes, this is the camp that Governor Cuomo has sided with, the uh, military-style school camp. So, um, amid all of this, though, uh, we do have a a bit of a ray of light trying to shed some light on this debate. Um, The American Federation of Teachers has partnered with the research and advocacy group In the Public Interest uh, with a new website called Cashing In on Kids, and it actually uh, collects uh, news reports, investigations, other data from around the country about the charter school movement and tries to sort of connect the dots and see what's going on and tries to show uh, parents and educators and community groups and, and unions that the charter school movement brands itself as a sort of organic, you know, community-oriented, grassroots kind of movement made up of caring parents and people willing to think outside of the box, but in reality it is actually people all from one large Um, corporate box, and they are pushing a model of education that basically wants schools to operate like corporations, and many of them, indeed, are funded by the philanthrocapitalists that we talked about with Joanne Barkan, these big Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and these other super rich people. In further news of worker organizing netting some successes, perhaps, um, according to McDonald's, you may have heard of them, uh, filing with the SEC this week, wages may have to rise at their retail stores. The report notes that strikes by workers over the past couple of years, quote, can adversely affect us or the suppliers, franchisees, and others that are also part of the McDonald's system and whose performance has a material impact on our results. Translation. They're giving us a bad name. It's funny, you know. (laughs) My burger is even more putrid than usual this time. What's going on? (laughs) Oh, goodness. You know, the report also notes that uh, an increased focus on income inequality in particularly the United States may, in fact, require them to bolster their image by, you know, paying their people more than $7.25 an hour. While we're seeing increased pressure all over the country in terms of raising the minimum wage, um, including that $15 an hour number, which seems to now become the magic number for workers from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to Seattle and SeaTac, Washington, to right here in New York, where the fast food movement kicked off, um, 
we're also seeing pressure on these private companies to raise their wages. Um, and of course, we mentioned recently that Walmart is maybe possibly thinking about backing a minimum wage increase because these companies, of course, would rather have the minimum wage go up for everyone than have to raise wages themselves, despite the fact that they, according to numerous amounts of research, we'll link to some of that on the Descent website, can easily afford to raise wages for their workers if they'd like to. And of course, McDonald's and other fast food outlets are sort of interesting in that they operate on a franchise system where the corporation at the top is siphoning money from all of these little stores that may well operate with a much narrower profit margin. But McDonald's has, as many people have pointed out, the ability to dictate the size and shape of a French fry that can or cannot be served by their franchises. If they choose to, they can also dictate that their workers be paid more than poverty wages. Uh, Moving on to the other side of the world, literally, in New Zealand. It's been a big couple of weeks for the sex workers' rights movement, and it, it all comes down to a landmark human rights tribunal ruling that issued an unprecedented decision in favor of a plaintiff, a sex worker who worked in a brothel in Wellington, and she brought sexual harassment charges against the brothel's manager. It was actually a, a wonderfully routine case, if you look at the document that was issued by the tribunal What's really remarkable about it is just how uh, banal it is. And what makes it truly remarkable is that this is a case adjudicating the rights of a sex worker. And basically the law worked as it should. In 2003, uh, New Zealand actually went leaps and bounds ahead of the rest of the world and, and fully decriminalized sex work and allowed it to be basically thought of as another form of labor, a job like any other, quote unquote, which is a phrase that will come up in our conversation with Melissa Yarrett later. And what she was asking for was uh, damages for some of the emotional and social harm that had been done by this manager who made lewd remarks about her weight, who um, asked her intrusive questions about the services she would offer to clients, and who basically was subjected to all sorts of torment. What's really interesting about this case is that it's also definitely a labor rights case because uh, one of the charges that she brought against the manager was that he essentially prevented her from sharing information about the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, which is an advocacy organization that provides um, services and other legal help to sex workers. She, you know, as an experienced worker, she wanted to provide this information to her co-workers and her manager actually yelled at her when she tried to do that and then uh, eventually intensified his controlling behavior by actually... um, Um, objecting to the workers at the brothel socializing among themselves, even on their own time. So what this is essentially is not just a domineering boss or chauvinist pig, though it is all those things, but he was actually constraining their free association rights by constraining them from communicating with each other. So all these issues kind of came to a head, went before the Human Rights Tribunal, and the law worked as it should. They ruled in her favor. And now we're going to hear a little bit from Catherine Healy. She's the co-coordinator of the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective. So what it means in this country, with sex work being decriminalized, you can focus in on the very exploitative behavior that you want to be addressed. And we don't have to be concerned that the nature of the activities illegal, i.e. brothel keeping or living on the earnings of a sex worker or procuring, you know, hiring someone into sex work, which are all things that are are illegal in other countries. The big difference is that, you know, the authorities now can understand that 
it's not the nature of sex work that is the bothersome thing at all. It's the behaviours that go around, you know, in terms of labour law, in terms of um, ha having a fair contract, um, having the rights to realise and access justice, if you need that kind of support. Yeah, it's, it's, for us it feels very historic and it's certainly an affirmation of the law. And that was Catherine Healy, co-coordinator of the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective. You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. For more about sex work as work, as such a novel concept, we now turn to friend of the podcast, Melissa Gira Grant, who I have known since high school. She is the author of a new book on sex work, out now from Verso, called Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work. Melissa is a freelance journalist whose writing on sex, social movements, labor, and technology have been published everywhere from Jacobin to Reason magazine and many places in between. And she and I are also the co-authors of a new chapbook called For Love or Money. So welcome, Melissa. So, Melissa, one of the central themes of your work is this idea of sex work as work. And you present this in contrast to sex work as it is often conceived of in the public imagination as a crime or as a moral transgression or some other form of deviant or um, pathological behavior even. Um, why is it un important to understand this sort of binary division between sex work as criminal behavior and sex work as um, an economic transaction, as a form of labor. And how has society's insistence on defining sex work only on one side of that binary really turned it from a form of labor into a tool for enforcing certain social boundaries? I think the most important distinction when we're talking about you know, is sex work considered work or not? Is sex workers consider work their work to be work? Um, and it is people outside the sex industry who are mostly concerned with trying to conceive of sex work in a different way, whether that's as deviant behavior or criminal acts or or any other kind of, you know, moral failing, whether that's individual or even collective, um, with some of these people who will say things like, you know, we're better than this as a society. We, you know, sex in an ideal world, in our utopian vision, there would be no commercial sex. Um, so, you know, those kinds of projections are really external to how sex workers experience the reality of their labor, which, you know, I feel like part of it's coming from this place of trying to understand sex work from the outside, which by necessity you will never be able to really understand what it's like. And at the same time, not regarding sex workers as really experts in their own lives and not really, you know, taking seriously what they have to say about what their own lives look like, including what they do to make a living. So, you know, it's it's sort of an exotifying or a sensationalizing of, of sex work as work that has to put it in this other category. And, you know, it really doesn't bear much relationship to what it feels like to do sex work. So when we're not talking about sex workers as criminals or sex work as a crime, where people are often talking about sex workers as victims, um, as people who are being abused by some other criminals rather than workers who sometimes have exploitative working conditions. You write in this book about the history of sex work as a political identity, how Carol Lee came up with the term to refuse the idea that she was a victim for feminists to save. Can you talk about how claiming a worker's identity challenges the idea of what sex workers need, of solidarity versus saviors? 
Sure. I mean, if you want to view all sex workers as one monolithic thing, and usually what people want to view them as when they're doing that is, is as victims, as people who are inherently victimized just by being involved in in commercial sex, um, that doesn't leave a lot of room for distinction when it comes to the actual experiences of people on their job, right? So it doesn't leave you room to say things like, for example, some of the things that I've reported on, um, Stripping is your job, but when you signed up for that job, you didn't sign up for sexual harassment while you were working at a strip club. You didn't sign up for having no control over your schedule while at the same time you're being told you have to pay a fee to work there. Things that I think we could rightly call um, labor violations and, and even forms of exploitation in the workforce. But to just call all of that victimization doesn't give us any of the tools to actually see what's going on inside of sex work. And, you know, when they're doing that, when, when outsiders are doing that with this idea of trying to cast all sex work as a form of victimization and by extension, all sex workers are victims, then they come carrying only one solution. Right. And that solution is leave sex work. There's no capacity in that that view of sex work to actually change the conditions of sex work. And there's no capacity there to view sex workers as actually agents of that change. It continues to keep the power in the hands of people outside of sex work, no matter what their solution is. Related to this, of course, there's there are a whole lot of jobs that workers might not always love doing and that might actually be harmful to the environment, to the broader economy, a lot more so than, oh my God, commercial sex. You said in an interview at Salon with our former co-host Josh Idelson, our labor rights essentially shouldn't be for any worker contingent on whether or not we love our job, which is something I think that everybody listening to this podcast, whatever their preconceptions of sex work can agree with. Can you talk about the way that sex work is conceived of as automatically worse than any other job where one might face negative conditions? Why is it that no one wants to save, as I always used to joke when I was waiting tables, no one ever wants to save the waitress? Well, this comes with that that victim identity, right? That like just by the nature of having crossed what's what's thought of as this line, this uncrossable line, that nobody would ever do sex work unless they had no other choices, unless they had absolutely bottomed out in some personal or even you know collective failing, that this would not be something that would happen to anyone. And that's not really reflective of the diversity of experiences that people have in sex work. And sometimes where this gets polarized, and I think in an equally unhelpful way, and this is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this idea of, you know, you do what you love, and, and we have to be empowered in order to des be deserving of rights, and, and how that argument is so, it creates these double standards around sex work, what you'll hear people say is, oh no, I wasn't victimized, I chose this, and I love this, and this is great, and I'm so happy at this job, which is something I would wish, and I think you and your listeners would wish everyone would feel, right? But we can't wait for that moment. Uh, until, you know, to, to actually step into our power at work. And in fact, it's through stepping into our power and organizing that we get to that moment. And in fact, we will never get to that moment unless people have some ability to come together and ask for some collective change, to demand for collective change. And so when that, you know, nobody wants to save the waitress, you know, even though people might say like waitressing is like really hard work, it's hard on your feet, it's hard on your back, it's hard on just your, your having to be on all the time and, and socialize with customers. I think those are experiences actually a lot of sex workers face too. But maybe as we have a different relationship to other industries, like we have a way of perceiving ourselves as consumers of other kinds of service work in ways that don't necessarily stigmatize us in the same way that sex workers' customers are. But I think really what it comes down to is people think since sex work is what you do when you have no other options, then like how could you have power at work to demand anything better? Which we know isn't the case. Sex workers have been organizing and demanding better working conditions for as long as there's been sex work. 
And I think it's important to note that, you know, if sex work happens to be that job you love, society does not allow you to legitimately take pleasure in your work and really love that as a career. No, absolutely. It's a total double standard. You're further criminalized for actually doing what you love. And in some ways, you know, society enjoys the victim more. That, like, there's more room and kind of this, you know, very... I would say misogynist view of, you know, you can be an acceptable prostitute. In particular, this is almost focused on people who sell sex, direct sexual services rather than other kinds of sex work. Like, you're acceptable so long as you say you were victimized and abused by it. And it was the worst thing you ever did, right? So to the extent that you do conform to that stereotype, um, you are somewhat more acceptable than somebody who, like the Duke University student who's now come forward under her real name um, and also her porn performer name saying, I enjoy my job. Yes, I need to do this for money, but I enjoy it. And so, you know, the Scarlet Letter kind of goes both ways. Right. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, this this constant performance, you know, feeling like you, you're pressured to perform either as a victim or, you know, as as the whore or whatever. I mean, it's it's um, it's a really interesting sort of continuum of just, you know, a system that forces people to be dishonest with themselves and dishonest with the rest of society in so many different ways. Um simply to sort of uh, appeal to a certain standard. Um, and so speaking about, you know, that whole kind of, you know, these supposedly sympathetic approaches to sex work, which involves sort of rescuing women, sort of this industry of rescue, uh, you talk a lot about sort of the, um, a, a sort of a, an industry that, that, is parasitic to sex work in a lot of ways, which is um, the rehabilitation industry, right? Or this sort of, um, uh, this kind of movement of moral crusaders who, um, in a way, are commodifying sex work for their own ends um, by portraying themselves as people who are um, opposed to sex work on principle, right? So what is the political economy of rehabilitation? Um, and, And how do sex workers respond to this? I think it was Emma Goldman who used the parasite language first, right? You know, over 100 years ago at this point where she is foreseeing that so long as there are policies that prohibit sex work, we will need to employ a class of people to enforce those policies. And then we will also have to have a parallel class of people to perform the rehabilitation. I mean, the very first women's prisons and jails in New York were largely filled with women who were doing sex work and funneled into those. I think our first women's reformatory in particular um, was, was created in some ways with the mandate of of saving women. And and this is a really prickly history, I think, you know, going back to the progressive era. It always goes back to the progressive era. But, you know, like, you know, at the same time, I think, as, as people were, you were seeing more organizing for... Um, for labor rights for for people to to not live in such abject conditions of poverty you also saw a movement to say well rather than um you know allow women to do sex work in very disgusting conditions which i think was perhaps more prevalent then we're just going to remove those women from sex work and move them into this kind of reformatory and and what you get in that moment is a good job for the women who will run that reformatory right like doing this kind of caring work and this kind of social work administering projects that are aimed at rehabilitating sex work Workers for the last hundred years has actually been a quite socially acceptable and if not quite honorable job to do for women. And and that actually, in a way, kind of puts two, what are perceived to be two classes of women at odds with one another. And it and it's very hard for me sometimes when I look at the the large NGOs that, you know, are doing this work who have far more resources than any peer-based sex worker rights organization, who in some cases might be taking on similar projects, um, but they're just completely out-resourced by what Laura Augustin calls the rescue industry, these, these, the NGOs, the social projects, and also the researchers that they employ who are invested in, in, in funneling people into them to a degree, taking them out of sex work and funneling them into these projects. They wouldn't probably 
describe the sex workers in those projects as sources of labor themselves, but in fact, some of these projects actually do employ them and have them engaged in activities like creating candles and jewelry and dresses that then they will sell to women in the developed world in order to generate more money for more rescues for more programs generally in, in developing world countries. So it's, it's, it's creating this other economy that I think is quite troubling when we, we think about, you know, what is actually the end game here, right? Is it to get women out of poverty? Is it to create good jobs? Or is it, and whose jobs? What are the good jobs that are being created by this? And for who? Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that struck me that I, I think I probably knew this, but it came up again this week, was that one of these charities or something that's involved in these rescue industries literally used to be the Magdalene Laundries in Ireland. This is Ruhana. Literally, yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, I, like, Where? not to apologize for, for oh, God, forcing no. women God, into, no. yeah. and the Madeline Laundries were these sort of basically slave labor camps that, uh, you slave know, took in camps. fallen women to rehabilitate right. them. And, and Ireland. what fallen women were, like, some of them were women who got pregnant out of wedlock, some of them were actual sex workers. Some of some them, them were women who'd been like, sexually assaulted, disowned yeah, by their families. Exactly. Some of them were women who, like got looked at funny by a man in the community. Like, it was literally where you lock up the sluts. I'm just horrified by this stuff. But so... I'm but that impulse, like, yeah. the, you know, this is something that I think is quite modern, is our desire to sort of look at people who provide commercial sex as somehow off this continuum of all different kinds of women who are right. cre- treated as outcasts because right. of their sexuality. And the reason I focus on women here isn't because there are only women in the sex industry. Right. There are men, women, trans folks, gender nonconforming folks in the sex industry... But it's the women in the sex industry, and usually cis women, who are the focus of these kinds of rescue programs. And when we look at the policing, it's trans women who are disproportionately the focus of those. So, you know, when you look at these gendered forms of labor happening in the rescue industry or gendered forms of policing, like you're talking about policing gender, who is a good girl and who is a bad girl and who is going to pay the price. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a whole culture around the deliberate misgendering of people as a as a form of enforcement. Right. Um, The idea of just like not forbidding people from expressing expressing their sexuality in any way that is deemed unacceptable. Or expressing their gender in any way that right. is deemed unacceptable, right. right? So if you are a, like, what was it, the Chicago case, right, where the... Uh, yeah, the, Chica- the yeah. Cook County um, Sheriff's Office in Chicago is running a, a website, and it may have been Chicago PD or may have been both in collaboration, where they were posting mug shots of men who had been arrested for soliciting sex. And uh, researchers at DePaul University actually did an analysis of the mug shots, and based on their analysis and other records they had access to, they calculated that about 10% of the people whose photos appeared on that website were actually transgender women who had been misgendered as male just because the policing system is so biased against trans women, is so focused on this very rigid idea of the men who are buying sex, women are selling sex and and not really having any place for trans women in that very binary kind of the men are you know evil and the women are the the fallen who need to be rescued kind of paradigm and what that does is for trans women who are already facing employment discrimination who are already facing other kinds of marginalization now their photo is on a website that anyone can look at and they're labeled as as somebody who's involved in prostitution right and not only as somebody but somebody who is like the abusive john right right yeah and there are stories of people you know of trans women having their clothes stripped, having their hair cut before they do these photos, being subject to very invasive searches that, you know, really cross into the line of, of sexual harassment, sexual assault, as far as I'm concerned, the stories that I've heard. Um, it's, 
you know, it is a gendered system when we talk about what this what this looks like in reality. It's not just about policing sex. Um, You know, and I think that's the kind of common misconception is that this is like a moral war or a purity Mm -hmm. war. And sometimes it can look like that. But I think really a lot of it has to do with sex and with gender and and with power. Yeah, it's really interesting um, because you brought up the jobs for the girls thing, which is something that Selma James wrote that like, There was a lot of solidarity between Selma James and other women from the Wages for Housework movement, which is a a movement around the issues of gendered labor, that they really understood sex workers' issues and really worked with sex worker organizing. That was one of the surprising things when I was researching the book. And and Carol Lee, who had coined the term sex worker, we talked a little bit about earlier, she had in her archives some of these newsletters from Coyote, which was one of the first sex worker rights organizations in the United States. And the front cover was a photo of a demonstration with uh, members of Wages for Housework, Black Women's Wages for Housework in San Francisco, and members of Coyote standing side by side. In fact, one of the early names for Coyote was WHO, which stood for um, Whores, Housewives, and Other. And the other stood for lesbians where they felt like they couldn't even put that in their name at the time so yeah i mean when you want to talk about who gets shut out of the who gets shut out of the conventional economy and still has to find a way to survive and whose work is undervalued you know of course these are classes in solidarity with one another but of course feminism didn't do much better by wages for houseworks than it's done by sex workers right. or for the welfare rights movement, right? <laughs> yeah. Anything like that and it, yeah and i think it's it's really important to talk about this in terms of just um um, how different values are ascribed to different forms of labor. Because when you talk about this economy of the rescue industry, you're also talking about how it's literally sort of trafficking in um, images of what sex work is, right? Uh, that become that in and of itself becomes commodified. And so, uh, you know, you have um, certain forms of value that are ascribed to just um, the process of rehabilitation itself, right? I mean, we have whole columnists who built their whole careers. Right. Is that this is the, the Christophian elephant in the room right now, right? Yeah. I mean, like, it, it is funny. I, the New York Times on, on Twitter this week was like, seven best Nick Christoph columns oh, of all God. time. And I'm like, really? Is he getting ready to be fired? Uh, I no. doubt, doubt no. that's what's happening. He's no. being lionized. No, and, and you want to talk about building labor power. I mean, Christoph himself now, even above and beyond the New York Times, he is a brand, right? And his brand is based on the subtitle of, of his half the sky movement which is from oppression to opportunity so he you know and is my, in liberal, my view, right there's right. that word again opportunity yeah and 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 the opportunity i think the lion's share of the, the title opp- of his sweatshops book right yeah. <laughs> the lion's share of the opportunity goes to christoph though right, right. i mean like right. this is this exactly. is what's happening here exactly. and and you're not allowed to question that because you know i i get told over and over again oh but isn't he like shining a light on these issues giving voice to the voiceless empowering women and it's like you know, I, I question, actually, how deep that anything that is so reliant on telling these kinds of tragic stories over and over again can actually make an impact. Right. I saw a wonderful quote on Twitter today from Arundhati Roy, and it was like, there are no voiceless. There are, this is not a direct the quote. Ignored um, and right, the ignored. Right, there are the ignored yeah. and the deliberately shut out. Yes. And that is exactly what's happening here, right? right? Whose voice gets heard is not a matter of whether they have one or not. It's a matter of who we've decided to listen to. Right. And, you know, the way conservative feminism was co-opted, what, you know, used to be a feminist movement that did genuinely have a, give, you know, have a platform for sex workers to be speaking for themselves. and Or was getting there. Like, I'm not sure how much it was there. I mean, there are still kind of moments in in 70s feminism where sex workers, I think, are largely regarded as, like, symbols of, like, the ultimate oppression. But, you know, I still found stories of, like, you know, at Judson Church here in New York, like, there were sex worker street outreach projects, there were jail support projects, like, there was a capacity to say both criminalization is fundamentally a violation of women's rights, 
but I don't know how I feel about the sex industry. Right. Yeah. And I, that, that's something that's sort of gotten lost in this polarization, right, where I feel like the women's movement has gone to a much more conservative place where they want to have an argument about how do I personally feel about sex work versus, well, what's the impact of the policies I support on sex workers' lives, which is the question, I think, right. that we need to be asking. And which also, I think, speaks to the way feminism has been sort of personalized and sort of all about emotions and feelings and self-empowerment and actualization. And when, leaning in. And leaning in. Even um, though they will blame sex workers for that. Like, how much of the language around, like, oh, I hate choose my choice feminism, which some I think is an interesting argument, but how much of that is really focused on things like, oh, well, sexuality and wearing fishnets and all of these things. Like, they almost seem like there's, like, these horophobic tropes, even yeah. in sort of the critiques of choice feminism or whatever you want to call it, that sex workers don't even have anything to do with at all. Like, it would be one thing if sex workers' issues were being, like, listened to. Like, one of the, the tropes I keep coming across is the mainstream media loves empowered sex workers, but I, the feminist, am going to step in and tell you the reality. And it's like, which mainstream media are you con- consuming exactly? You know, like, I don't think that there's much love for empowered sex workers either, that feminists have some great... Um, you know, balance of the scale to actually write by bringing in the reality of the tragedy. The tragedy is all that most people know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of whose story is not getting told, right, or whose story is being shut out or ignored, um, I think is really key when we understand the challenges that labor organizing faces within the sex work industry. And um, you talk about how uh, this sort of secrecy, this uh, this constant wariness or uh, having to sort of be vigilant about how your story is used. Um, you know, even you as an author, right, um, face this challenge when you were researching this book. I'm sure. um, um, it creates barriers uh, not only between the sex worker uh, and the client and the sex worker and uh, society as a whole, but also um, among sex workers themselves, right? Um, it actually makes solidarity harder because they face so many challenges in terms of banding together and taking collective action, right? Uh, even to be, you know, seen having a united front publicly is seen as, you know, <laughs> just a, if not outright dangerous, then, uh, you know, a, actively militated against by so many forces in society. So um, can you talk about how this criminalization aspect um, has really prevented any kind of effective labor organizing on a mass scale? Sure. I mean, it's criminalization. It's also stigmatization, even for forms of sex work that aren't criminal in the United States. I don't think it's all that much easier for somebody involved in, you know, legal or quasi-legal sex work like webcam work or porn or stripping to also come out and to do labor organizing. And in fact, most of the labor organizing we've seen in strip clubs has actually been like not really organizing. It's been like incredibly one-off things like lawsuits for back wages or um, misclassification lawsuits where people in working in strip clubs were treated as independent contractors and not as employees. And, um, you know, that isn't even quite organizing. Like the, the legal remedies that, sec- that even legal sex workers have available to them aren't even enough to actually allow the industry um, to allow themselves to transform the industry. It's, it's very entrenched, this idea that, well, you'll never speak up and talk about it. You'll never speak up and complain because you're just a stripper. You're just an escort. No one will believe you. And that creates such a huge barrier to sex workers to actually you know, be able to take collective action. And it, it's also incredibly frustrating because I feel like sometimes what I'll hear from more the kind of like anti-sex work side is like, well, the sex workers who do speak up are not representative. Those are only the most privileged sex workers. And, and 
to be honest, like, of course they are, because they're the ones who probably have other resources and other kinds of supports in their lives who can speak up and who can take that risk. Or there are people like Melissa Petro, who I wrote about in the book, who actually had left sex work, had become a teacher. And then when the New York Post decided to trail her and publish photographs of her and out her as having been a former sex worker, she lost her job as a teacher. She was rubber roomed. And, and where were the anti-sex work activists then saying, you know, this is somebody who actually, quote unquote, exited the industry and, and lost her job outside the industry because of sex work stigma. So when you look at all of those factors and then when you look at the kinds of criminalization that, um, you know, make even sharing information amongst other sex workers possibly a legal risk, you know, when the third party criminalization, which I don't know if a lot of folks really understand or, or like have thought about how that plays out in real life when we do things like criminalizing pimping or brothel keeping or living off of the earnings of sex work, which, yes, you're right. They're incredibly archaic sounding words because they are. These are like 100 year old laws that are still on the books. Big brothel is watching you. <laughs> They're like these are laws that were designed another time they don't really resemble the reality that we have now but what does that look like now if if several sex workers got together and tried to share a lease on an apartment and were all contributing to the cost of the rent they could potentially be you know committing a different kind of criminal act and sometimes even with more criminal penalties associated with it than just selling sex right now they're brothel keeping now they're sharing their earnings like the kinds of collective strategies just as workers that sex workers might want to employ in order to share costs and to create safe and work environments themselves are criminalized and also parallel to you know public nuisance laws that say you know three or more people gathered in a circle is a gang right or yeah when i when i went to college in new orleans the brothel laws that are still on the books meant you couldn't have a sorority house like you could have a frat house where like God knows what kind of awful things were happening in the frat But houses. there was a limit on Caitlin how many Flanagan single women could live together. Right. Yeah. You can't have more than four. I actually, I lived with two other female roommates and we used to joke all the time about needing to get a fourth so that we could officially be a brothel. Um, but yeah, it's literally, you couldn't have a sorority house because it would be considered a brothel. Now, New Orleans, of course, is where everybody from across the world comes to have their illicit sex. But that's another story. And, and the reality is, you know, these laws, many of them are still on the books. And you think to things like sodomy laws or, or even adultery laws, like things that are there that are very rarely enforced. But the reality is these laws sometimes are enforced and they aren't even enforced evenly across the sex industry. The people who are most likely to face criminal charges with these laws are the people who already have the least resources. So when you look at street enforcement around prostitution, you're mostly looking at racial profiling and gender profiling, particularly of trans people. And it's not, you know, so much more of the sex industry has moved indoors, both because of gentrification, but also because of this policing. People who have access to safer places to work, people who have access to, you know, running a business that allows them to do most of their work indoors simply aren't going to be the targets of this. So, you know, when people say things like, well, the sex industry is incredibly racist and it, it entrenches all of this this kind of racial inequality like well, the policing is part of what's doing that the policing is a significant part of what's doing that and the people who are criminalized in the sex industry you know just like everything else like it, it falls along race and gender and class lines it isn't evenly distributed right and um i think you know when i was reporting on uh, the new zealand case recently uh one of the things that really came out in that case is that you know despite um for over a decade now they've decriminalized um street workers you know street based sex workers are still um, facing so many more hardships than people working brothels. And meanwhile, you have people who, you know, want to pass, you know, restrictive zoning ordinances and other things like that to sort of get rid of brothels, right? Um, uh, which, when in reality, I mean, the, uh, that is that is where they prefer to work, many cases, because it is. I mean, wouldn't you prefer to work with them? It sort of reminds me of, like, the trap laws in the United States around abortion, where, you know, they're trying to c- create criminal penalties for everything surrounding the activity. So, you know, in New Zealand, like, this is where the fight is going to be happening, 
which is around zoning and even around advertising and things like that. And it's it's funny, like it, the, what the New Zealand story, the thing that you wrote about it was fantastic, you know, just really highlighting like this is something that wouldn't be possible under criminalization for a sex worker in a brothel to sue their boss for sexual harassment and win. Um, if you view all sexual sex work as sexual assault, then like what capacity do you have to distinguish sexual harassment from the job itself? Right. So it was it was important as a legal victory, but I think also just as a sort of ontological victory of like, what is it that we mean by sex work? And it's just not. No, that's not something that's available to anybody outside of New Zealand at this point. Right. And um, one of the other issues in New Zealand is also that um, migrant sex workers, immigrant sex workers are especially targeted, right? And and just, you know, bringing that international aspect into it and looking at how the law is unevenly enforced and how so much discretion plays into who is policed and how. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the, how race, nationality, and sort of uh, transnational sort of um, identities play into um, how sex work is seen on an international scale, especially when you have people like Nick Kristoff jetting off to some Southeast Asian country to rescue some women. It was so fascinating because I feel like I've been I've been spending a lot of time lately maybe like over the last year, but now I finally got to go back into it now that the book is done, looking at these evangelical or religious right projects that um, describe themselves as, you know, missionary projects against sex trafficking. And usually how it goes is with the founder story for these organizations. One woman went to India or Cambodia, saw a brothel, felt absolutely terrible for the women there, came back to the United States, realized that sex trafficking doesn't just happen over there, and then decides to, you know, solve the issue in her quote-unquote own backyard. And so they're drawing a parallel between what they see as sex work happening and what they would describe as like a you know, a, a more, you know, they'll say, like, it's not just the third world or other kinds of, like, really offensive things. But this was also how some of the very first kind of, you know, th- a lot of the feminists who were pushing anti-pornography projects in the 80s, when that sort of fell apart, you know, this, it wasn't compelling to the mainstream of the feminist movement. They were losing all kinds of civil liberties cases. They pivoted to trafficking as their issue and their test ground for their you know, their projects was not the United States. They, you know, it was like almost a form of like globalization in itself. They took it to Cambodia. They took it to India. They took it to where I think that they thought they would experience less resistance, which we both know, you and I, like from looking at the sex workers movements in India and Cambodia, was like probably a really big mistake. (laughs) And they actually, you know, the sex workers in Cambodia have literally chased the Gates Foundation out of the country. In India, they have like stood up to to brothel raids. Like, you know, it was probably a huge mistake. And so now here they come back to the United States in some ways with like these failed projects and they want to use them here and the population that they're targeting here are generally young women of color and and trying to describe their experience as if it's like like what they saw in the brothels in India there's a lot going on there it would take us a long time to unpack it but I think that there's like a certain kind of like race savior narrative here you know and they're like often projects like there are some projects that are run by women of color, but those that I found are mostly like service projects, like the ones that sort of have these grand missionary visions and also the ones I think that are most likely to work very closely with the police, um, you know, do kind of fall into that white savior narrative. And who has access to those resources and those institutions, yes. right? It's powerful, white philanthropists yes. and the women, right? And it's a compelling story. I mean, it's actually really distorted women's philanthropy. I think it's very difficult to actually inject a counter narrative and say, actually, you know, when it comes to other issues, we do want the people who are most impacted to be doing the organizing. So why on this issue? This issue, it's like the safe place for the white savior. It's like their last 
safe space. They've been sort of chased out of every other progressive issue. Right. It's like, you can have that space, Jesus Christ. Oh, but, yeah. um, and it, going back to, say, um, even, uh, you know, in the so-called Wild West, right, um, uh, the saving of the Chinese prostitutes, right, white slavery, all mm-hmm. this, these yeah. historical tropes, these relations of rescue, right? I mean, yeah. even back then, it was these, the you know, white gentrified women who were moving into these communities and sort of as a way of, that, that was the only public role that they could take. Exactly. Right? And also it was really focused on on immigrants, right? I mean, at the very first, uh, like the the first set of laws that we see in the United States for targeting migration, specifically name Chinese women, you cannot, like, you have to prove that you're not a prostitute if you're going to immigrate into the United States. And I think actually, you know, there are folks who are much more plugged in in Europe than I am, but I think part of why we're seeing the the kind of moment in Europe we're having where countries that are traditionally pretty liberal about prostitution are now considering much more extreme forms of criminalization. Extreme forms of criminalization, I should add, that the United States has had for the last hundred years, but Europe is now looking at them and, and, and welcoming them, some folks are, as seemingly progressive. I think a lot of that has to do with, with migration issues in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. And And then, you know, there's a way to sort of like, cast a wide net across all migrants and say, well, you're all potential trafficking victims. And so now we need to close our borders and more tightly regulate labor, which we know can also then create the conditions under which smuggling and trafficking are how people cross borders to get work. So there's something... I don't think you can talk about trafficking without talking about race and migration because it's the fear of crossing borders, right? And it's the fear of the other and the other in the wrong place. And, And there's something there that is just so... For people who are normally progressive, it gives them quite an outlet for their xenophobia. Right. And seeing that duality of the economy, right? Um, the, the, once you create a border, you're creating, you're creating a toll, right, for crossing mm-hmm. that border. Um, that one, one that everyone can profit off of, no matter what side of the more, so-called moral debate that they, they happen to be on. Yeah. And I mean, I think that it's it's worth sort of taking a step back because we've sort of been talking about this as, as if... Um, it's a given, but like the way that any conversation about sex work in the U.S. particularly has just become about trafficking, and I say that with big old air quotes, um, that like there is no – and to go back to like why does nobody want to save the waitress, the actual biggest for- source of, of labor trafficking is not sex work. It's domestic work. Um, which is also very gendered, which is also, you know, very racialized, which is also being done by women who are crossing borders in order to do this work. And again, there's no savior industry that springs up to save the domestic workers. We've just focused in on the sex work. And I mean, I think you and I have both said this, perhaps, that that is because the people who are doing the saving are implicated in the working conditions of domestic workers. And there's there's something going on, something quite misplaced or projected onto like the saving of the sex worker that has to do, I think, with just like, you know, heterosexual monogamy, shared household labor, strains on relationships and employment that are so outside the realm of what sex workers are actually responsible for. And this is sort of where I draw my hard line in the sand, where I, you know, really will tell people who want to have that conversation about, well, what does sex work mean for everybody else? It's like, that's a conversation for everybody else. Like, that, that is not something that sex workers are responsible for. Do we ask domestic workers to be responsible for all of the conditions that create domestic labor? Do we say things to them like, oh, I don't know, aren't you obstructing women's natural bonding with their children? Do you we know? say that coal miners are responsible for all of the environmental problems that have been caused by coal mining? Well, and even when people do scapegoat and say those things, and I'm thinking back to, like, you know, like some of the work that Debbie Nathan was doing in the 80s talking about the panics around sexual abuse in child care centers and how some of that was about this fear of, you know, the mother-child bond being broken down by women going to work or white middle-class women going to work in greater numbers and putting their children in child care. But, like, 
you know, it's this, no matter how hyped up that fear was, ultimately the utility and the necessity of having to pay somebody to care for your children mattered more. Right. And so that whole kind of conversation got sidelined. And and now, you know, it's, you know, it is staggering. I mean, we were, we were at an event together watching Caitlin Flanagan, you know, applaud herself for, for treating her nanny so well, um, which is sort of rare to see that in public, but it also yeah. felt quite performative. You know, it was just like, what is this? Like, this isn't about you. Like, I want to hear your nanny talk. I don't really yeah. care about what you have to say about her working conditions. I would say conditions. the rescue industry is actually creeping into the domestic worker organizing but it's, in some yeah, I mean, It could. I mean, I think that's yeah. something I'm worried about, too, because the narrative would be very seductive. But I, I do wonder, because there are so many more... I. Actually, I'm not sure about this. Like, how many more domestic workers are out and visible in claiming their labor rights versus sex workers who are? Because their movement is quite newer in the way that it's configured right now. Right. But, you know, would they tolerate this kind of binary division of we're going to separate you into the empowered domestic workers? And, the, like, there's something about the way domestic work is configured that right. doesn't allow that same level of victim abject, you know. Like, yeah. I feel like there's a way that domestic workers have told stories about exploitation and abuse. Right. And even sexual abuse, even really horrific sexual abuse. Or to go back to our friend Dominique Strauss-Kahn and, you know, about hotel housekeepers who are... I mean, you have the wonderful quote. By wonderful, I mean horrifying quote oh, from, his, from lawyer. his lawyer. I challenge, yeah, Henry, Henry something. It was like, I challenge um, you to distinguish a naked woman or a naked prostitute from any other woman, right. which was his really victim blaming kind of defense. I don't even know if that was, a, I don't think that was just about that interaction in the hotel. I think that was about like another party where there were lots of nude women. Right. But the, the sense is like, well, how can we blame him? Because this woman was already the other, you right. know, but also... Because she was immigrant and because she was black and because she was doing this She was work. there to set his room up. So, of course, right. that means she's going to want to sexually service him, right? Right? Isn't that, and, and I think, you know, this is the thing that was actually most shocking to me about the, the service work that I have done was how much men expected that that meant they had rights and control over my time, my emotions, mm-hmm. how much I was going to be present for them. In ways, actually, I felt I had much more control over in some forms of sex work. Like, I, the thing I would love to kind of open up and talk about with folks who are kind of doing service work organizing that might have room for sex workers is the ways that all women's service work has a component of kind of sexualized labor, um, you know, emotional labor. We talk about this a lot. Um, And drawing those connections, because I think that's actually a place where people could understand one another and understand that, you know, it's not the service work that's the problem. It's not the the emotional work that's the problem. It's the liberties that people take with you and your ability to fight back, right? Right. Right. And this idea of consent, right, or or agency, right? Uh, You know, being allowed to draw your own boundaries right and and being right it's about self-determination which is what scares the bejesus out of people right yeah no i mean when i was a waiting tables right this like you would get people who wanted to know all sorts of personal details about you or you would get people who wanted your phone number or you would get people who wanted to grab your ass when you turned to walk away from the table or whatever it was and yeah this this endless sort of I mean, I wrote a piece about this a little while ago, right, where um, Timothy Noah, who's a reporter whose work I love, he writes wonderful stuff on inequality, and he wrote this piece that started out with this sort of creepy discussion of, like, I thought the barista was in love with me. And it's like, no, of course she's not in love with me. And you would only think that if you'd never actually done her job as a woman. Exactly. You would never, ever think that if you had not been forced to consider this kind of work and what this kind of work is. And, yeah, I mean, I think... Eileen Boris, who we had on the show not that long ago, um, has done a lot of work putting sex work in the continuum of 
Um, she said something wonderful about sort of intimacy and dirt in terms of the intimate labor that is done by home health care workers. And it's very similar to this sort of ideas of intimacy and dirt that we put onto sex workers. Mm -hmm. and, there, and there's something about sex workers being the kind of socially acceptable caste to to put all of the, the dirt on, including, right. you know, the dirt around sexuality, yeah. so that women who don't do sex work, I think sometimes still internalize this idea that that's the group of women that bad things happen to. Right. And, you know, they don't get to set boundaries the same way I do. Right. Like, at the same time, though, that, like, if they exist, then somehow my boundaries aren't right. strong enough or will be respected enough. So long as men think they can do that with them, yeah. what does that say about me? Rather than something much more broader and collective, which would be we all have boundaries, right? We all have the right to be respected no matter where we fall in that continuum, no matter, like, what, um, you know, what we're perceived to take on because of the kinds of work that we do. I think, it, you know, it, there's something here that's missing around just, you know, being so closely identified with your job. Like there was a quote from an old uh, dancer zine that I found called Rocket Queen that I put in the book. And, and it's from a, a dancer saying like, I'm just so annoyed I even have to say anything about sex work at all because I don't like saying anything about work. Like, it's just what I do to make money. Like, I don't want to have to like be so closely identified with it and defend it. Like, it's just what I do. And I think like that kind of like boring normalcy is really what I'm striving for. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it would feel quite revolutionary, actually, to get to that point. Right. Could just be like, like, this is just my job. And it is weird, right, when you – there are only certain kinds of work that you sort of can't ever exit, right? Like the Melissa Petro story is so telling, right, that you're you're not allowed to exit. You're not allowed to leave. And, like, this is sort of a tangent, but I'm reading Victor Navasky's book on the Red Scare right now and the way that, like, sort of former communists had to come in and, like, rec recant and then name names. And this seems to be the same process that we sort of demand of – sex workers, whether they have left the business or whether they've left the business forever or whether they've left the business and figure they might someday return. You have to sort of recant and name names and be abject and be sorry and be the perfect victim. Right. And if you have any association with the industry that's not of a place of abjection or, or rejection and, and, and naming names, then you're perceived to somehow be colluding with some dark force or something sinister. Yeah. You know, it, it is very, I mean, that in itself is a huge barrier for people coming forward because if the only acceptable place for you is the person who turns around and outs the people who you used to work with, right. that you used to work for, if you have to perform, the, and I say perform quite deliberately, like this whole rejection of everything that you were in order to reclaim who you are, uh, some of these missionary projects that I'm, I've been writing about, you know, use the language of restoration. Yeah. We have to restore their soul. That reminds me of Hyman restoration surgery. It, it's not that. I mean, these guys, these are like the promise keepers just like did like a 90 degree turn. And now they're focused on girls and their sexuality vis-a-vis -vis what they call sex trafficking, which. But so much of the, I mean, it's that messianic impulse. I mean, this this is also part of the sort of neo-imperialist impulse behind, you know, policing sex work in other countries. You know, just as you see these anti-LGBT laws being exported to other countries and these campaigns, you also see things like the global gag rule, right? right. Or things like the anti-prostitution pledge, right? The, the law in Uganda right now, you know, it also bans pornography and it also bans miniskirts, you know, who think is going to be, the, who is going to be the target of that kind of policing. Right, right. And it's it's something that, you know, part of it has this, to do with this idea of like the sexual other becomes like the other for everything that's the other, whether that's the migrant, whether that's the bad girl, whether that's, you know, whatever kind of role we need that person to play. But then there's also this sort of like empty gestures around development where they're like, well, if we want to become, it's almost like on the bad girl, good girl thing applies on the level of nationhood. It's like, we want to be a good nation. We want to have a good economy. We don't want our women to be doing that. Right. right? But right. I, we want them to be 
you know, so happy sweatshop workers. Right. Exactly. Or, yeah. Or X never will be slaves, right? That's yeah. the constant refrain in any kind right. of empowerment. And the big, the big scary boogeyman in the room that you're whatever, it's never capitalism. It's always like this, the sex industry. Right. Again, with the, the scare quotes, right? The like, it's never the bigger economic forces that make all of us do jobs that sometimes we like and sometimes we hate and sometimes are miserable and sometimes are great. Well, focusing on the sex industry is a really great way to marginalize and separate people, right? I mean, the, the obsessive focus on, on sex trafficking to the extent of other kinds of, of trafficking. And I even hate saying sex trafficking because right. it's like, well, this is labor trafficking, period. Labor, labor, labor trafficking. Like, why can't we call it that? Um, and, and why do we have to treat this as a different kind of trafficking? Well, because we don't want to believe that sex work could be worse. Work. But could you imagine something where you could actually have like a decent human rights anti-trafficking project that right. was focused on all forms of trafficking that didn't just funnel more money to police departments to conduct vice things, which is what's actually happening. Um, but that would require people to break down that kind of internal separation between those people over there who, you know, is, so long as people have to believe that the only reason you would do sex work is if you were forced into it, whether that's like somebody literally forcing you into it or they will even, this is a new one on me, but the kind of the anti-capitalist idea of being forced into it because you're forced into it by capitalism yet it's like a force that they don't apply to other jobs right. <laughs> right. as opposed so to like, yes, let's have that conversation about how capitalism other, as opposed right. to all this other stuff I do for wages that capitalism doesn't force me yeah, to do it's, right. so it's, it's forced into journalism by capitalism yeah. right yeah no one gets into journalism for the money right <laughs> well not if you're sane but that's no. what <laughs> no it was it's it's very and, and the double standards continue to play out. I mean, I was just talking to someone the other day, and I'm not going to name who they are, but who was asking me, you know, if I got into sex work for the research, you know, it's like it's almost taboo to say, like, no, I got into it for the money. Yeah. Why did you get into your job? You know, like, it's it, – it is – I think money ultimately is the taboo that people are fighting over when they're fighting about this. But it's much easier to do it when it's somebody who you don't think is likely to fight back, where you can project onto them all of your fears and all of your worries about your job and what it means to have to sell yourself – um, you know, that are very hard to confront, I think, because it is quite overwhelming. I mean, you guys do this every week <laughs> with every work, every kind of work. Like, well, I, I do it for the research, not the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it is, this is a wicked problem. And, but to just focus it on sex work, I think, gives people sort of a false sense of security of this, you know, these forces of neoliberalism um, won't touch them. Right. The precarity isn't about their job, right? Right. Right, right. And at the same time, you can up your own value, your moral value, right? Uh, your moral weight. And you can sort of somehow seem like you're decoupling yourself from this monetary system because you're saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm on this crusade, you know, just because I believe in the power of redemption or something right. like that. And right? there's economic fantasies in there, too. Like, I, I have seen over and over again, like, these statistics that the anti-sex trafficking or anti-prostitution orgs will put out saying, like, she had to service 20 to 40 men a day. At the same time as sex workers, I know, like, even, like, kind of middle income sex workers are like fighting to find clients because it's a tough economy they're like please like where is that person who's getting 20 to 40 people a day like do they even do they exist anywhere or is that itself part of the fantasy of abjection and and exploitation that people have like i think it's a fantasy that that sex workers are even particularly making a ton of money in a really tough economy like the idea i think that's like part of the fantasy of like we well, would only do it if you were making a lot of money and the reality is a lot of people are living the equivalent of paycheck to paycheck in their sex work too Right, right. And it also goes back to this overemphasis on the privileged sex worker, right? right? It's like, oh, they're just, you know, oh, she's a college girl or something. She's just making money on the side or something like that. So, you know, whereas, like, it, already you see this division that is being drawn within the workforce. Right. Um, and 
I mean, who knows? Like, I don't know if they imagine a world where there is no sex industry and everybody works in a rescue project. But if there's no sex industry, then there's no rescue project. So how's that going to work? Of course. <laughs> where, where are we? What are the good jobs that yeah. we're all going to go to right, exactly? Right. And that is that is income that comes from trafficking, right? It's just it's on the other side of trafficking. Exactly. Right? Without trafficking, trafficking there would be no demand for rescue projects. Right, right. End demand. Um, I joke about end demand, but like as we wrap up here, um. We talked a lot about the problems with rescue projects and the problems with all of this, um, and we talk a lot about solidarity and what that actually looks like and what what does it look like for people who want to be in solidarity with sex workers. These end-demand campaigns are like almost like the the polar opposite of solidarity, right? Where they're like kind of like an incredibly shallow. Um, not even like boycott kind of campaign, right? Where they're basically saying, like, can you imagine if like who the the workers who organized against um, their mistreatment as uh, they were picking tomatoes and they were targeting Trader Joe's and coalition of mockley workers? Yes, thank you. Imagine if they had decided to demonize everybody who ate tomatoes and purchased tomatoes and made that the cornerstone of their organizing. Um, they wouldn't have gotten what they wanted, first of all, right? Like, it would have, like, led to a world where perhaps they wouldn't have even had their jobs, which is would have taken quite a long time. But it certainly would have changed their conditions at work. Um, but by framing this as an issue that, you know, even when they appealed to consumers, like, even when they were doing actions at places like Trader Joe's and others, like, they were able to give people in the community outside of that actual, those actual workers and their jobs, a way into the issue and a way to support what they were doing in a way that like doesn't actually really currently exist around sex work because of this end demand stuff. I think that's a huge part of it where it's just really focused on demonizing people who buy sex, criminalizing people who buy sex. And in a way it centers them and it, and it doesn't actually give sex workers much room at all in that kind of campaign. So, it's even one step further than the just leave the industry solution, right? Which right. Is like just we're like, just not even going to listen to you. Like right. we're just going to control We're just going to shut guys. down your source of business. Exactly. And, you. and so that, you know, all of the problems that that has created and all of the kind of, you know, very uh, difficult assumptions that that ri- relies on, right? That like we don't need to listen to sex workers, that we need to like focus on the sexual activity that, that these men are engaged in. If you could just flip that, you would probably have something that looked a lot more like solidarity. Even though, to be honest, it's really hard to imagine what that would look like in real life. Like I think it would require really confronting the deep shame and stigma around sexuality that we are all raised with. It would require confronting that the sex industry isn't happening in some other place very far away from you that, you know, good neighborhoods just need to shove out and, you know, good people just need to not look at those websites. Like these are your friends and neighbors. These are your community. And and so it's like you almost have to like have both projects happening at the same time, like people really coming to terms with their own biases and assumptions, which is why this book is targeted not so much at sex workers, but as people out outside of sex work to like lead them through that process and then to open their eyes up to the organizing that sex workers are actually doing and the ways that they can support that which those are projects that I think by necessity are led by and for sex workers so unlike the rescue projects they don't have roles for outside saviors and and that's I think one of the critical distinctions the roles for the outside savior might be amplifying their work but they're not in a savior position at that point right they're in service they're alongside with they're walking with they're not directing um, but they are lending what resources they have to a struggle that they actually do share a stake in just as you know larger members of the community right and that requires a certain degree of humility that I think a lot of, you know, philanthrocapitalists and, you know, white savior. Yeah, philanthrocapitalism uh, and those kinds of projects don't go well together. Like, it's really like it, you have to 
it's a kind of organizing that I actually like kind of worry for like really truly peer to peer projects, grassroots projects where the expertise is coming from people who probably don't have like, you know, a pedigree from an IV and haven't done time inside like a major foundation. I've done time inside a minor foundation, but still like, <laughs> you know, like I I've seen how kind of the halls of philanthropy work and how hard it is for those kinds of projects to get supported and also how easy it is for people to plug into the savior project. So you know, that's why I think it's 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 a two pronged thing. It's both, you know, stepping back and kind of confronting your own biases and then also opening up and being willing to listen to the ways that sex workers are already taking the lead. And that was Melissa Gira Grant, the author of Playing the Whore, the Work of Sex Work. We will put links to her work, her book, and much more at the Descent magazine website. And now it's time for Arg. I wish I'd written that. So this is where we discuss um, the stories that we wish we had written this week, but did not. So instead, we will refer you to them. Um, My ARG for this week is by Heidi Moore of The Guardian, and she writes about a company town, a very sad little company town, um, that was once uh, seen as the vanguard of U.S. industry. It was was an IBM uh, sort of factory town, and she writes about how how the workers have been faring since IBM has been laying off workers left and right and dramatically restructuring and basically undergoing some really, really painful cutbacks over the years. And what's remarkable about the story is that um, it talks about what happens after a tech boom, right? And it's, it's sort of a window into the past, but it's very resonant with what we see going on now. And basically, you have a, a huge group of, of workers, which is reflective of, uh, you know, legions of workers across the country, who were once part of this great institution that they were really proud to be part of. They really had faith in the IBM mission. They felt like they were really part of the information age, and they were driving it forward, and now they've been completely left behind by it. But it's not a standard narrative of of, oh, the march of progress has trampled over these sad little American workers, what it actually represents is a ruthless pursuit of profit on the part of IBM, and more actually elucidates how it wasn't inevitable that the workers would have declined. I mean, IBM's overall uh, decline from its heyday was perhaps inevitable, but what it's done actually is made of what uh, Moore calls a Faustian contract with the shareholders, and basically it is said, it is laid out a 2015 roadmap that basically is a deal with the devil that they've struck with Wall Street. And they have promised to deliver $20 in earnings per share to their stockholders by 2015. So that means they have pretty much guaranteed, locked in a price for their share in 2015, which is completely speculative. And they have since then been, uh, you know, cutting like mad and restructuring, trying to get their profits up to that margin. Forget about the commitment that they made to their workers, about their pensions, about their economic security, about staying in one place and providing the lifelong jobs they once promised. It's actually behaving just the way big banks and other huge venture capitalists do. They basically don't care about workers at all and care only to their shareholders. So their primary allegiance is not their social contract to their workers, but to uh, the stockholders in some corporate boardroom in Wall Street. So what this really says is that for all the glitz and the glamour that accompanies any tech boom, what's really happening is workers are still being killed and uh, degraded the same way. The nice thing is that the workers are getting organized. They're formed an alliance at IBM, and they're actually forming more or less a union, even though they're they're not formally a collective bargaining structure, and they're organizing themselves. Sadly, they're sort of late to this game, because for a very long time, they thought to themselves, oh, we're professionals. We're not workers. We don't need to organize. But now they realize that they really need those networks, and that's one constant throughout the labor movement. 
from one company town to another, the piece this week that I think might have literally made me say arg when I clicked on it, which a piece that I should say was a link from the excellent Katie Sips, excellent Hack the Union email list, which I have mentioned on this podcast before. Um, I was talking earlier in today's podcast about the Rust Belt transition from factory work to care work, and this piece is a deeper dive into exactly that. It's called From Factory Workers to Care Workers by Bernadette Highland at Contributoria.com. And while I wish I had written this, I could not have actually written this because Highland is writing from a particular place, Manchester in the UK, that famed factory town. And it's where she grew up, and her mother worked in a factory at Robertson's Jam Works. She describes the factory as a collective experience, offering various shifts to suit the women's childcare needs, as well as a trade union, a cheap canteen, and discounted food. But now, of course, it's 2014, and all of that is gone. Instead, today's working-class women are making their money as care assistants, who are tending to women like Highland's mother, elderly working-class women themselves, who are now living longer because of advances in health care. But of course, these care workers make very little money in an increasingly privatized system, even though they note their work is incredibly important and requires a lot of skill and training. One care assistant, identified only by her initial A, is paid a little more than six pounds an hour. She works between 20 and 40 hours a week and sees nine clients through an agency and then others on the side to make ends meet. She tells Highland, My working day starts at 6.30 a.m. when I drop my baby at my mom's house. My first appointment is at 7 a.m., and then I call back to my mom's to take the baby to school. I have three children, 18, 12, and 4 years. Doing this job means I can be home for the kids and give them their tea, but then I have to go out later to work. B, another care worker, says, I thought the work was very useful to do, and you're making a big difference to elderly people's lives. But I was really shocked by the pay and lack of nurturing and support from the agencies. This is a piece about work and our changing definitions of it, about what happens when public services decline and when labor unions lose power, about who does this work considered less important. We'll put a link, as always, to this and to everything we've discussed today at the Descent Magazine website. And next week, I will do a little foreshadowing. We will have Micah Utrecht here talking about his book on the Chicago Teachers Union strike. So, Also part of the Jacobin series at Verso. And that does it for this week. You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org, or you can tweet us at hashtag belabored. Send us your story ideas, your news tips, um, your commentary on how we've been doing, and, or, you know, a pot of homemade jam if you want. All right. Talk to you later. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, produced by Natasha Lewis. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.